Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our Sunday morning series in this wonderful, uh, theological, theologically rich book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. In this series, we're seeing that Christ is better. Christ is better than all things. And uh, he is the one that the whole entire uh, Old Covenant was pointing to. And uh, we've seen many great things about the person and work of Christ already in chapter 1 and the beginning part of chapter 2. And so let's continue with that this morning. But before we do, I do want to say just a word about tonight. I know Kevin mentioned that. But folks, uh, you spoke loudly and clearly about three years ago when we started doing some small groups on Sunday night that you greatly desired some small group training on Sunday evenings. Instead of a, another kind of a repeat of a Sunday morning service, you wanted to use that as a discipleship training night. And so we heard you loudly and clearly on that. And we've been encouraged by the way we see all different generations uh, meeting together in each class. And so tonight, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Some wonderful things going on. Uh, I mean, you, you think about the ladies' Bible study, the book of Ephesians. I can't think of a richer book in the New Testament than the book of Ephesians. And they'll be going through one of the precept Bible study series. Then, as Kevin mentioned, the men's study with Dr. Tony Evans, tremendous Bible teacher and a speaker, and he's highly sought after around the country. And so, men, you're in for a treat. And then I think of how back in the 1930s, we, we certainly would not agree in everything with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a liberal German theologian who ended up being put to death by Hitler. But he was so excited about visiting America because he wanted to visit the American church. Well, he got over here, visited for a little bit, and he left disillusioned. In the 1930s, he said the American church is a church without a theology. How sad. What would he say today? You know, some of the statements I hear coming out of even evangelical life today, very disturbing. So we want to talk about basic systematic theology, and I'm going to keep it simple on a layman's term. We won't be able to cover everything I'd like to cover, but we'll be meeting in here. You know, Jude 3 tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it, what the Bible teaches. And so you come out tonight and, and be a part of one of these three. As Kevin mentioned, if you didn't sign up, it doesn't matter. Come anyway and just get plugged in. Uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please. We're going to be reading out of Hebrews chapter 2 today. Hebrews chapter 2, picking up right where we left off before, and we'll be starting in verse 5 and reading down through verse 18. The writer of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant word. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would take your word and prick our hearts. Lord, teach us wonderful things out of your word. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Equip us. And Lord, for that one here who does not know Christ, I pray that you would use my words and use your scripture, Lord, to convict them of their sin and draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As I said last time we met, we were talking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Folks, there's no one more important to talk about. There is nothing more important to talk about than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so today we're going to continue to talk about the person and work of Christ and what that means for us. I hope you can see at the close of today that everything about Hebrews chapter 2 has loads of application for you and me today as we live our Christian lives. Now we saw in chapter 1 that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. 
We also saw that Christ is superior to the angels. No angel was ever referred to as God's only begotten son. Also, the angels didn't create the universe. But Christ did. The angels are not eternal. There was a time that they were not. There was a time that the angels were created. But the Son of God, by contrast, is eternal. From eternity past to eternity future. We also saw that everything is in the process of being put under the feet of the Lord Jesus. And and so in chapter 1, the writer has made these issues very clear. Christ is superior to the prophets and he is superior to the angels. He is superior to all things. And then two weeks ago or three weeks ago now as we opened up in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus is superior in offering us a great salvation. He offers to us what the old covenant, the Old Testament could never do. The angels were the mediators of the old covenant. Acts chapter 7 speaks of that and also Galatians chapter 3. The angels were the mediators of the old covenant but Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and the new covenant is greater than the old covenant and the mediator of the new covenant is greater than the mediators of the old covenant. The writer is making the point here that everything about Jesus is better, far better to anything that came before and to anything that could ever come after. He is the climatic way in which God is speaking to men and dealing with men. And as we saw at the opening of chapter 2, that means that you and I had better not neglect what we have in Christ. Because he's making the point under the old covenant, if every act of unbelief, every time they disobeyed God and failed to listen to God, if that brought judgment, then how much more judgment will you and I face today under the new covenant? You see, it's the principle to whom much is given, much is required. We have more of God's revelation today than they did in the Old Testament. You and I are more responsible, not less. And that's the point he was making in the first four verses of chapter 2. Now what we're going to see this morning is God's plan with man when he created us. But we failed. Fortunately, he's going to show us how Jesus fulfilled this mission. And he shows us that what Christ has done, uh, in, what he's done has brought us victory. Not only uh, did it bring victory, but we share in everything that Christ won in behalf of humanity. First of all, this morning, I want you to notice with me God's original intent for man, which was that we would have glory and dignity above the angels. Glory and dignity above the angels. 
Now folks, unfortunately, when we think about the order of things, we get it wrong. We tend to think God, angels, man. But that's not right, is it? It's God, man, and then angels. You see, man was created to have a greater glory than the angels. In fact, Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 that you and I one day will even judge the angels. Man was created to have a greater glory than the angels. As chapter 1 closed, we were told that angels were sent to be messengers and servants to us. But the Bible teaches that man was created in the imago dei, the image of God. I want you to notice what the writer does here. He says it's been testified somewhere. He doesn't name the Old Testament reference he's referring to. Now, we know he knows the reference because he goes on to quote it almost verbatim. But he knows that he's writing to an audience that knows the passage well that he's talking about. And besides that, he's not even wanting to emphasize the human writer. He's wanting to emphasize God as the author of all Scripture. In verse 6, he goes on to quote from Psalm chapter 8. Now, the first part of the psalm expresses wonder and amazement at God's attention to man and God's care for man. I want you to notice the statements that he makes. You made him a little lower than the angels for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put all things under his control. Let's talk about those statements. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. He's simply describing our current station in life on earth. The angels are in heaven with God and we're not. But listen to what he goes on to say about man. Man was crowned with glory and honor. Uh, Again, he's quoting from Psalm 8, and what Psalm 8 is doing is looking back to Genesis chapter 1, where we're told that man was created in the very image of God. Now, before we get into all of that and what that means, I, I want you to think about what man thinks today about man. What does man think about man? You commonly have two extremes and and people will sometimes hold to both extremes at the same time. At one end of the spectrum, some people describe man as being nothing at all. We're just pond scum. We're not much more than roaches. We're nothing. Man's not special what they say. Man's not special. He doesn't really have any kind of special place or purpose in the universe at all. The evolutionist says we're just a little higher up on the evolutionary chain. That's all. For instance, Stephen Hawking. You know who that is? One of the world-renowned physicists who passed away fairly recently from ALS. Stephen Hawking said, and I I quote, the human race is just chemical scum 
on an insignificant planet in an insignificant universe revolving around an insignificant star. Now, how does that make you feel? What he said about man is so unbiblical, but that's the idea shared by many. And we see unbiblical ideas all around us today about man and other things. And then on the other hand, rather than denying man's special status, what do other people do? Other people want to deify man, right? Everything's about us. As, as the Greek philosopher, the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. Some people deify man. Some people even mix those two extremes. Man, man is nothing, but it's still all about us. And so what's the result of all that? Human life is treated as nothing by those who say that we are nothing special. The secular anthropologist says that all man is, is he is just the human animal. That's all he is, a human animal. And so many people think absolutely nothing of killing babies through abortion or, or practicing euthanasia on people that they claim no longer have any type of utilitarian value. People show racism or whatever other ways that man is not seen for what he truly is. Instead of treating human beings as persons created in the very image of God, we think that we can treat people any old way that we want and so we have all kinds of ways in society today whereby human beings demean other human beings people are harmed they're killed they're slandered they're beat up just all sorts of things why because secular man fails to understand how God created man. Folks, I want to say to you this morning very clearly that anything that demeans another person, anything that harms them, anything that runs them down with our talk or kills them or hurts them in any way shows that you and I have failed to grasp the importance that God has assigned to man when God created men in his image. Every person that you meet on the street this week, in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, at school, at work, wherever you go, every single human being that you will encounter this week is somebody who is made in the very image of God and because of that alone, they have honor and dignity. Now, what does that mean to say that man was created in the image of God? Man is to reflect God on the earth. We are to be image bearers. God has communicable attributes. Now, he has incommunicable attributes, those attributes that belong to God and God alone. But then also God has communicable attributes, things that he shares with us. 
God possesses those perfectly. We do not. But nonetheless, we're to express them. In other words, for, for example, because God is holy, we're to be holy. We're to be image bearers. That's what it means to, to be created and to live according to the image of God. God loves, so we're to love. We are to rule. We are to be vice regents with God. He has given us a very important stewardship. We are to carry out God's attributes as we rule. That means we are to be holy and righteous and merciful as we rule. God is intelligent. God is omniscient. In fact, man is not, but still, man is intelligent. We're like God to some degree in that instance. God is righteous and moral. In our dominion, we're to be righteous and moral. God is rational. We are rational. We think. Whereas animals tend to just operate off of instinct, man thinks he's been given the powers of reason. God communicates. So does man. Man speaks. He speaks in ways that the animals cannot. God enjoys relationships within the Trinity and with man. We're to enjoy relationships. Also, God is spirit. Man has a spirit, a spirit that will live forever. That's not said of any other created thing. Folks, all of those are ways that we live out what it means to be created in the image of God. So very clearly the Bible points out that you and I were created to be something special. Something special with purpose. He goes on to say here, you gave him dominion. You put everything in subjection under his feet. Uh, The Garden of Eden was the first temple with with Adam, the priest, over it. And, And Adam and Eve were to extend the temple or expand the temple over the face of the globe. They were to have dominion. And in their dominion, they were to be stewards of what God had assigned to them. They were to rule and reign over God's creation. And they were to reflect God's character and rule over all things. And in so doing, they were to be an extension of God's reign over all things. Again, they were his vice regents reflecting his glory. They were to take care of the garden and the earth. They were to take care of the animals. They were to take care of everything that God had made. Now folks, without buying in to the full uh, agenda of the radical environmentalists, there's nonetheless a grain of truth in what they say and do. We are to take care of God's planet. We are caretakers. We are to be humane. We're not just to abuse everything and neglect everything. Christians ought to care about the planet. We ought to care about the animal kingdom. We we ought to care about these things because God has given us dominion that we would be his vice regents and that we would rule over the planet that he's made. 
You know, I fear sometimes that just because we know that this world is not our ultimate home, we're looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And because we are, I fear sometimes that as believers we have the attitude that nothing around us now matters. Well, folks, it does matter. Man struggles to have dominion. He tries to gain control. That's why men go to space. That's why we go into the depths of the sea. There's this desire for dominion that man has to see what's out there and to gain some sense of control of what's out there. Folks, that's a God-given desire. Now, yes, it's been affected by the fall, but nonetheless, it is a God-given desire. Now, he goes on to say here, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is it that we see? We see a fallen world. I don't know why this thing is popping and cracking the way it is. Can y'all hear that or is it just me? I figure maybe it's my coat on the wire. Anyway, what we see now is a fallen world. We are suffering. We, we experience sickness and death and bloodshed. We experience a very different picture than what God created this world to be. I read a couple articles this week that that illustrates that. Just a few things in the news. There, there was a big, stout, strapping 45, 46-year-old man. He jumped on a little frail 91-year-old man, jumped on him out on the street corner and beat him up. And the 91-year-old is in the hospital in critical condition with a brain bleed. And then a few articles away, there's the story about the woman going into a New York City daycare, a daycare in a home. And she started stabbing workers and even stabbing little babies, some that were just days old, some that are in critical condition. What's that an illustration of? We live in a fallen world. Something has gone desperately wrong. By the way, what happened? 140, uh, where's all my Jeopardy contestants? What happened 149 years ago today? Who was born? Anybody know who was born? Typhoid Mary. A a, A lady that was healthy, But she carried the typhoid fever and so people would get sick around her and die. And and so they isolated her. She lived almost uh, three decades of her life in isolation. How sad. Folks, what I'm saying is when when we hear about violence, bloodshed, when we hear about destruction, when we hear about sickness and diseases, what is all of that a testimony to? It is a testimony to the fall of man. God created this world, but something has gone wrong. What went wrong? 
Genesis 3, the fall of man. And the Bible points out very clearly, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes the point, this is just one place that's made, but Paul makes the point in Romans chapter 8 that when Adam and Eve sinned, it affected the entire created order to where creation today is doing what? It's groaning. It's groaning. Sin has affected everything. So now we struggle to have dominion. Man's at odds with one another. We're at odds with the environment. We're at odds with the animals. And most of all, we're at odds with God himself. Even in the best case scenarios, the the dominion that we are to have comes about very slowly and with a great deal of difficulty. In some cases, man never gains dominion over something. Again, all of this is a result of the fall. Man has not lived up to his potential. And that's the point he also goes on to make here. The result of all this the writer is is making is that man has not lived up to his intended purpose that the writer of Psalm 8 speaks of. By falling into sin, Adam has led the entire human race down a descending spiral. Adam was the representative man. He led the entire human race astray. And so verse 8 ends with something very wrong. There's, There's a tone of defeat. There's a tone of disappointment. But aren't you glad that's not the last chapter? Because secondly, what I want you to see is there is victory in Jesus. Pick up reading with me in verse 9. In verse verse 9, he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. With verse 9, we see Jesus coming into the picture. Jesus was man as man was intended to be, fulfilling everything that Psalm 8 had been speaking of. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man, fulfilling what man was supposed to be. And Jesus achieved dominion and is achieving dominion perfectly. He did this not simply while he was in heaven, but he did this when he became a man. Verse 9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, a reference to the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus took on the limitations of human flesh. He didn't cease to be God, however. Again, he's fully God, fully man. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union Two natures and one essence. Two natures and one being. Fully God, fully man. And verse 9 goes on to say that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What did he do? He tasted death for everyone. Now as one of your Southern Baptists 
commentators and theologians talks about, Dr. Thomas Schreiner. When he, when he uses the term everyone here, he tasted death for everyone. He is not preaching universalism that everybody's going to be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. But he's using everyone in the sense of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Jesus tasted death for everyone. All kinds of people. He came to not only live as man was intended to live, and so his superiority is seen over the first Adam, but he has won back what the first Adam lost. He won back what the first Adam lost, and even more so. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, it's like Paul has scales there, and on one side of the scale he puts Adam, on the other side of the scale he puts Jesus Christ. And we know all the bad stuff that Adam did. Again, representative man and sin coming into the world through him, the federal headship of Adam. Uh, So there's Adam, but what Christ did... Christ did for good even, Paul makes the point, even more than what Adam did for bad. It's not, Paul makes the point, it's not even that it evens out on the balance scale. What Christ did for good and for God's glory even outweighs what Adam did for bad. Now folks, that ought to make a Baptist shout. Right? Where would you be without Jesus? Where would I be without Jesus? And so he goes on in talking about the the victory of Jesus Christ. As a part of that, thirdly, I want you to see truths about the incarnation. Truths about the incarnation. Pick up reading with me again. In verse 10 he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children God has given me since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it's not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who were being tempted now that's a mouthful by coming in the flesh fully God fully man By winning back what Adam lost, 
living as man was intended to live, Jesus lived, fulfilled, the man, uh, fulfilled the plan as God intended for man to live, but he's done even more than that because he's also our Lord and Savior who came in the flesh. Some people might have been saying, well, if he came in the flesh, isn't a spiritual entity like an angel better than flesh? And he's making the point, no. No. Because by coming in the flesh in his son Jesus, look at what he's done. First of all, the incarnation and the sufferings of Jesus were in the purposes of God, as he points out in verse 10. It was fitting. It wasn't an accident in bringing many sons to glory, that is, that is us. It was fitting that God allowed his son to come in the flesh and be perfected or completed through sufferings. He, he uses perfected in the sense of being made complete. Why does he use language like that? He's talking of the role that Jesus would have. He would have a role as our high priest and our advocate. So in the plan of God, it was fitting that he would come in the flesh that he might understand what we face. So being made perfect does not mean that he had sin in his life. And that sin had to be purged. That's not what he's saying at all. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus was sinless. He's always been sinless and always will be. Being made perfect has to do with his role. He came in the flesh so that he might experience what we experience yet without sin. So that he might be perfect as a high priest. Folks, what if we went before a high priest that had no clue whatsoever what it was to live as a man? But he's pointing out here, not just in God's omniscience, his full knowledge, but even in his experience. He came to be perfected for his role as a high priest so that when we go before him, he identifies with us completely. He is perfectly suited for the role of being our high priest. Because he came in the flesh. Whatever needs you have in your life, you can rest assured that Jesus is your sympathetic high priest. He was equipped to understand from experience, not just theoretical, but from experience, he was equipped to know exactly what you and I face in our daily lives. Amen? Come on, church. Are you awake this morning? Does that, does that not make your clock tick? To know that Jesus was perfectly fitted coming in the flesh to be your high priest. So as you go before him, he can identify fully with everything that you experience. Yet he was without sin. Man, that's good news, folks. 
Then he quotes Psalm 22 in verses 12 and 13. And, and there he's talking about by, by, com, by, by becoming flesh, he came to proclaim God's name and he came to bring glory to God among men and he came to show trust in God. And then, boy, here's another big one. Tighten your seatbelts, okay? Verses 14 and 15. Jesus came in the flesh that he might defeat the devil in the very arena where the devil has been allowed power. Think about death. Satan controls death only in the sense that he is the author of sin and the wages of sin is death. And then there's the fear of death. Because of estrangement from God, men fear death. They fear facing God. Sometimes I even meet well-meaning Christians, very mature in their faith. I have no doubt about it at all. Very mature in their faith. And yet they get news that they're going to die. And there's some fear there. That's natural because it's the unknown. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus came into the very arena where Satan has held us captive with with death and the fear of death. And in that arena, Jesus has kicked the devil in the teeth. He's came into the arena where, where we die and Satan holds us captive. And Jesus has defeated death. He's defeated the grave. As as 1 Corinthians 15 says, He has taken the sting of death and the fear of death away. Folks, that's good news. Yes, there's still the unknown and we fear death, but guess what? We know the one who's conquered it all. And if we're in his hands, the grave cannot hurt you. The grave has no ultimate power over you. Because he was raised from the dead, you too, if you're in Christ, are going to be raised from the dead. That's what... That's one of the things Jesus accomplished through the incarnation. But he's not done yet. He still has something else to say in verse 17. He he came in the flesh to become a merciful and faithful high priest. In his role as high priest, he's merciful. We've already mentioned this, that by coming in the flesh, he fully identifies with our weaknesses. Think about it. Jesus experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced loneliness. He experienced his friends turning away from him. He experienced the attacks by Satan. He experienced opposition and persecution from people. He experienced fatigue. On and on and on we could go. If Jesus had not come in the flesh, we might always wonder, God, do you truly understand my plight? But we can know that he does understand our plight. 
He came in the flesh, he says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came to offer a suitable sacrifice. He'll make the argument later in the book of Hebrews that the high priest in the Old Testament had to offer their sacrifices over and over and over again because the sacrifices that they offered were not perfect and they had to be done and redone and redone. But Jesus came and offered himself as the final and complete and perfect sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice needed. Sometimes you'll hear well-meaning people say something like, you know what we need? We need another Calvary. Boy, if we just have Calvary all over again. We don't need another Calvary. Once was enough. Jesus said, tetelestai, it is finished. He made complete propitiation for our sins. And so you can be certain that if you are in Christ Jesus the Lord, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, he says, He came in the flesh to offer aid to those who were tempted. Not only did Jesus experience everything you do as a human, but he also experienced the temptations that Satan threw at him in the the desert. Jesus overcame every single one of those temptations, and he never sinned. John in 1 John categorizes all sins under three things. You know what they are? What's the three, three broad categories that John says? Lust of the eyes, what else? Lust of the flesh, what's the third one? The pride of life. Satan threw every one of those at Jesus. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, showing him the bread when he was hungry. And showing him all the kingdoms of the world and that all the kingdoms of the world could be his if he would only bow down and worship Satan. Imagine that, being hungry 40 days in the wilderness without eating. Are the Darnells here this morning? Patrick Darnell and his wife, she fixes wonderful homemade bread. And on Wednesday night, she will have a loaf of her hot bread. And she'll have it wrapped up. And Patrick will, afterwards, he'll come down and bring it to me. It is, whoo, that's good. Could, Could you imagine bread like, if you'd been in the wilderness 40 days without bread and water, 40 days fasting, and and Satan came and showed him bread. Turn these, turn these stones into bread. You can do it. You're the son of God. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And then the pride of life. What did Satan say about that? Jesus, you're the son of God. Throw yourself down. Lord Jesus, you know. Well, he didn't call him Lord. He just, Jesus, you know you cast yourself down. You're God's son. And, and he's going to send his angels because after all, look at who you are. He's going to send his angels. And he's going to rescue you lest you dash your foot on these stones. Appealing to his pride. Think about who you are. And the Bible says Jesus encountered every single one of those temptations. 
And he never once sinned. Never once. What that means is when you face temptation, I face temptation. We have his help. It's not a sin to be tempted. If it was a sin to be tempted, Jesus would have sinned. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's just sin when we give in to the temptation and we disobey God. Because Jesus never gave in, he can come alongside of you and give you strength, the strength that you need in overcoming that temptation. So folks, think about this. The implications, the truths of the incarnation. Jesus coming as our high priest, living as man was intended to live, fully identifying with our weaknesses, the weaknesses of the flesh, our temptations, everything. So that when we go before him in our prayer time, when we call, when we say, Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you in Jesus' name. And Jesus is our high priest. We go to God through Christ. And we have a high priest who is there before the Father being our advocate. He's our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor. And he knows everything about us and all of our weaknesses. And he knows exactly what we need. Pretty good, right? That's putting it lightly. You and I failed. We're in Adam. Jesus didn't fail. Jesus never fails. And so I hope you can see that Hebrews 2 is one of the greatest passages that we have in the New Testament that shows us about the person and work of Christ. Some of you right now need victory from sin in your life. You need to come to Christ. You need God to regenerate you. You need to be born again. That's God's work. I I love what the the great theologian Louis Burkhoff says about this. Regeneration is, is monergism. It's God alone. Only God can do that. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins and only God can make you alive in Christ. Some of you need that. And then as Burkhoff goes on to say, conversion, you have a role in that. Because in conversion, you repent and you turn and you come to Christ. So you have God. Only God can make you alive. And then the Bible commands us to turn, to turn to Christ. Some of you this morning... You need to be made alive because you are dead to God and dead to the things of God. And your life shows it every day. Now, now folks, let me say something. We have all been there. We've all been there. Anybody who's saved, you weren't always saved. We've all been there. There was a time that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. And our lives proved it. Some of you today are still in that condition. You are dead to God and dead to the things of God more than anything else. You need God to quicken you and make you alive. You need Him to regenerate you. And you need to turn to the Lord. 
You have nothing to gain, nothing to gain by saying, yeah, I'll, I'll think about that someday. I'll think about that someday. Don't you wonder the people in hell today, all their lives, it's, yeah, I'll think about, I'll, I'll think about God. I'll think about salvation. One of these days, it's not too late for you right now. Some of you, like the prodigal son, have wandered away from the father. You're in church. You're on the outside. You're doing all the right things. But you know you're like the prodigal son. You're in a distant country. And you need to come back to the father. Some of you are dealing with issues in your life that are illustrative of the weakness of the flesh. I'm not talking about necessarily bad things. Just limitation. You need help. You need God's help. You're weak. You're facing sickness. You're facing things going on in your life. And you need somebody who understands. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. And then some of you are battling with temptation. And you're weak in that. Lord, I'm facing this temptation it's at, at my doorstep every day. I'm weak. Lord, I've given in so many times. I, I need your help. I need your... He can help you. He's been there without sin. Come to him. Call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have victory. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did and because he shares his victory with us. Lord, I pray that we would live in that victory every single day. It's tough living in this world. Lord, we face opposition. We, we, we all have critics and those who oppose us and, and we're subject to all the the gossip and slander and hatred of other people. And Lord, also we, we have great friends and encouragement. But, but we just, we know what it's like to live in a fallen world and see things around us that aren't right. But God, we thank you that we have a glorious future in Christ. Because as Revelation says, you tell us you are making all things new. Thank you, God. Thank you. Lord, help us to worship you, to walk in obedience to you. Lord, speak to those right now who need you. You know what they need because you know all things. Help them to yield every aspect of their lives to you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.